come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 88 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., and I'm recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, we have Odyssey Through the Ones number 15, as I have featured reviews of The Face Behind the Mask. That is the one from 1941 that I had to do some digging, but I ended up finding a copy of that on YouTube. And then I also watched Come True, and this is off a recommendation, and this is the one that is getting its release here in 2021. Also have many reviews for you of The Forever Purge, Hatchet 3, Final Prayer, and Under the Skin. Now, I was in the middle of watching another movie, but because I'm heading up to Michigan for the weekend, I didn't get a chance to watch it and get everything recorded, and I wanted to make sure this episode was ready to go because I wasn't sure what time I would be getting back. So I think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. What I'm going to go ahead and do then is get you over to a brief break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be The Forever Purge. This is from 2021. This is directed by Everardo Gout. And this is written by James DiMonaco, who also came up with the characters. This stars Anna de la Rogueria, Josh Lucas, and Will Patton. This is a action-horror-sci-fi-thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 6.0 on IMDb and a it looks like there's not enough ratings yet on Letterbox, but just some of my friends that I have on here is I see a two star, a four star, as well as an a three star. So the synopsis here is all the rules are broken as a sect of lawless marauders decides that the annual purge does not stop at daybreak and instead should never end. So this is a movie that I was really wondering what they were going to do with it. I personally enjoy the series, even though it is a bit heavy fisted at times. It is interesting that I saw some people complaining about this one because of the politics. What is interesting is that this whole concept is predicated on its politics. But I'll dive into that just a bit later here. And I'll admit that I didn't have the highest hopes, but was still, you know, caught this in the theater. So where I want to start is what I was saying, you know, just a second ago. Complaining about these movies because they're too political, you're better off just avoiding them because they aren't for you. Something else I want to address here is that it, a lot of people are claiming this is targeting conservatives with the premise. That just to me is playing the victim card. The New Founding Fathers is a political group that is more radical than normal Republicans. This is more of a far-right extreme group. The only way it is targeting you is if you share the beliefs, so if that is the case, then I guess the shoe fits. With that out of the way, this movie is really in a response to what happened with that radical group that attacked Washington, D.C., this is just taking that smaller incident and showing what happens if you expand it to the extreme. Regardless of where you fall, there are just a lot of tension that has already you know, boiled over here in the last year or so, and it's been building up for a long, long time. Our former president wasn't good at trying to calm these down either. This movie is playing with that. 
The new Founding Fathers believe the Purge is good to relieve tension. Now, the character of Dylan, who is portrayed by Josh Lucas and his father in the movie of Will Patton, is, you know, pointing that those who partake in the Purge, who are mostly, you know, poor or, I guess, middle class, are just falling prey to what the rich want them to do and kill each other off. This feels like a direct correlation to how the United States, you know, going back to normal, despite the pandemic we just went through, and seeing how things, you know, could work and decide not to do it and just try to go back to status quo. Now, the middle class are breaking their backs while the rich get richer. I'm sorry to be up on this soapbox. I just feel like this is what the movie is trying to convey, and that's what I need to kind of share. Now, something else I feel like I need to bring up here is, you know, this being an attack on conservatism. It can feel that way on the surface, and I will agree that the previous four are showing that if Republicans fall for the more far-right rhetoric, that it could be an attack on your beliefs there. This movie is really looking at those that follow QAnon. They aren't explicitly saying that since it's using, you know, allegory. This is an offshoot, though, that is more extreme than, you know, normal Republican beliefs, thinking that if they follow what their leaders say to a team and taking it upon themselves to cleanse the United States. And I'd actually say this is more of a more extreme offshoot of the new Founding Fathers, actually. This is also pointing out that groups like the Proud Boys, that if you feel we had a purge, then you could finally snap with tensions getting as high as they have been in the past year or so. That's not to say I don't have issues with the story because I definitely do. The big hurrah in the end of election year is now undone here. It feels like they wanted to end it there, saw that there was some potential for more, so they went with the prequel in the first Purge. Now that one I feel is way more heavy-fisted than what we get here. Now when that or the television show didn't do as well as they really wanted, they decided they were going to continue on with the story. And I do think the events of January 6th definitely helped play into that. Now, I love franchises from the 80s that, you know, tend to do this, and I shouldn't harp too much. Since, you know, they'll have a perfect ending and decide, no, we're going to keep doing this for monetary reasons, so, I mean, it is what it is. Now, since this is based in more reality, it just feels empty to me to do that. It doesn't ruin the movie, but I just think that the route they went here, they could have done something a little bit differently, especially with those who are behind, you know, this Forever After Purge. Now, the last thing I really want to address with the story also involves the pacing with this movie, you know, and a lot of people calling this boring. I will admit, it does run a bit long. I think it could have been trimmed by 15 minutes and would have just ran a bit tighter. I understand why they have some things here that needed to be introduced. The buildup works for me with, you know, showing that the purge is back, the safety measures put into place before the real terror begins. Aside from that, I thought this moved along well enough, but if you don't like action films, I don't think you're going to like this one, because this is really action... Uh, first and foremost. Next I'll move to the acting. Something else I've been hearing is that the characters don't act as you normally would in the real world. I understand this. It's a legit critique due to, you know, horror being more based in something that could actually happen here. I kind of chalk some of this up to movie logic because, you know, it is what it is. So I understand how some people are bothered by it. I'm personally not. And I think that Dila Rogera was solid as our female lead, but there is something that I need that I feel like it's a bit much about her backstory. To survive this ordeal, though, you would need luck or training so I can overlook it. Lucas does well as being this arrogant guy. I do like the character growth there, and I mean, that is a little bit cheesy, but again, I think you kind of have to have it in a movie like this. Cassidy Freeman along with Levin Rambin, I thought, you know, they were both fine. The latter being pregnant adds another layer of tension, but I don't necessarily feel like it needs it. I get the message with her in the end, though. I did like Tanak Horta. Not sure if I said that right or not. I thought he was pretty solid. All of the Forever After Purges are fine. How they look makes sense with what the movie is trying to convey. I did like the cameo here by Patton, as I'm always a fan of him. And I'd say the rest of the cast was fine in rounding this out for what was needed. So the last thing I'll go into here would be the effects. I was surprised to see the bit of brutality that we do get for this being a mainstream movie. Now, I'm not going to pretend like it has a lot, but for the most part, I thought what we got was good. There wasn't as much CGI as I was expecting. I did like the scope of that. We are sticking with it, you know, being out and about while things are happening. And the only CGI I really remember was the blood spray or splatter, but that wasn't enough to be an issue. Thought the cinematography was fine aside from that. So in any conclusion here, I thought this movie was better than the previous installment. This had an idea of, you know, who is behind this new purge that is breaking the rules makes sense, especially with the, you know, real life event that we're correlating it back to in, you know, recent memory of the movies released as well as writing this. 
I don't have any issues with the acting, and the movie logic is there for me to get, you know, past decisions despite, you know, it trying to be based in reality. The effects were solid enough, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed for me. I do have an issue with the continuation of the story, as the beginning here makes it feel empty with election year's events. Regardless, I still found this to be above average for me. I am curious with multiple viewings where this one would fall. So my rating here for The Forever Purge is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then I have up next, Hatchet 3. This is directed by B.J. McDonnell. This is from characters as well as written by Adam Green, and it stars Daniel Harris, Kane Hodder, and Zach Galligan. This is also from 2013. This is a action comedy horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a search and recovery team heads into the haunted swamp to pick up the pieces. Mary Beth learns that the secret to ending the voodoo curse that has left Victor Crowley haunting and terrorizing Honey Island Swamp for decades. So this is another movie that I heard about when it was coming out, but I hadn't seen the original at that time, so I avoided it. I did watch the first one a few years ago before finally seeing the sequel, and then this one here for the Summer Challenge series for the 2010s over on the podcast Under the Stairs, as this is one of the lists that I got placed on as 2013. So much like the previous one, this one doesn't have the most complex story, being that this is a slasher film. Green, who is only the writer on this one, is as well as he does have a cameo, is paying homage to the genre. It feels like a movie from the 1980s with a lot of what we're getting. There's a lot of story built up in the previous films, and we're just kind of building on that to get to where we get in the end of this one. Now what is interesting is I think this trilogy here could have been played straight through to get the full story, as outside of the first one, we don't get a whole lot of development in the second or third, just outside of trying to find ways to stop Victor Crowley. Now, I don't want you to think that I hated this movie, as that's not the case. As someone who loves story and premise of movies, that intrigues me more than some of the other ancillary things. I like that there is no continuity violated here, and from what I could tell, it picks up right last one left off, where, you know, the events of what happens at the end of the second one lead right into the third one here. This one really shows us that Victor is a repeater, which was a concept introduced in Hatchet 2. We have a lot of new characters as cannon fodder, which is good, you know, for a movie like this. Then to bring up something I also stated is that we're getting new ways to try to stop Victor as well. Now, I did have an issue here with this movie, though. Before I get into it, I'll shift over to the effects. I think, once again, they're really good. We have good blood and the gore along with that. My issue here comes with the deaths. We don't nearly get as many of them in this movie. Victor decimates a lot of people off screen, and I'm just curious as to why they decided to go that route. These movies are really based on, you know, the kills. I get that some of them would get repetitive, but as a slasher film, you really kind of need them. So fans of the subgenre do come to expect that, and I did also have some slight issues with some CGI that would get used here. Thankfully, there isn't a lot of it, though, so it doesn't take me out. Now, from here, I think I'll go over to the acting. I like that we got Harris back as Mary Beth. She is fine in this movie, but she is much more subdued, and her lack of an accent does hurt this movie as well, and I actually have this issue across the board for a lot of actors who are supposed to be from Louisiana. I thought Kane Hodder was good as Victor Crowley. He just has that imposing size and a look for the role. Zach Galligan, Carolyn Williams, Derek Mears, Sean Whalen, Jason Tross, Sid Haig, Ted Geohagen, Jared D. Pascal, and Joel David Moore all have solid cameos. Aside from that, I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed, and this includes Riley Vanderbilt and even Adam Green himself rounding everything out, as I was saying. So really the last couple of things to go into here would be the cinematography and the soundtrack. For the former, we aren't in the swamp as much in this movie. They did something a bit different here, and there is a bit of claustrophobia still being lost in the you know swamps, and I do like that because that's one of my favorite parts of this series. And I'll give credit to how it was shot to give that feeling as well. So the soundtrack doesn't necessarily stand out to me like the previous movies did, but it still works for what was needed here. So in conclusion then, this is a decent follow-up. There is less of a story here, and we get less kills as well. I would have liked one or the other to be ramped up here. I will say that most of the effects we get are good. The acting is solid enough, with the cinematography and soundtrack working for what was needed. I still prefer the original and the sequel to this one. I don't think this is a bad movie, but a step down in my opinion. I'd say that this is just over average for me. It is just lacking kind of elements that are needed to go higher for me. So my rating here for Hatchet 3 is going to be a 6 out of 10. Then I also have watched Final Prayer. This is from 2013 and went by the original title of The Borderlands. 
This is written and directed by Elliot Goldner. It stars Gordon Kennedy, Robin Hill, and Aiden McArdle. This is a horror film that is from United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a team of Vatican investigators descend upon a church in a remote area to demystify the unusual happenings, but what they discover is more disturbing than they first imagined. So this is a movie that I didn't know a whole lot about. I'm pretty sure the first time I heard about it was on the podcast Under the Stairs when I was starting to go back through the back catalog and was, you know, working through the first show onward. And it is one that doesn't pop up all that often. I don't really hear a whole lot of people talking about it. Now, I'm not giving this a watch as part of the T-Put Summer Challenge series as this came up on the 2013 list. So we're getting a found footage movie here. The explanation as to why they're being filmed all the way to the end makes sense. They are there to disprove a miracle that is happening. There have been times in the past where recordings have been incomplete, so they're required to wear these headsets with a camera on it while they're at the church, and they're also wearing it at the cabin. That doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense there, aside from giving us a deeper look at these guys and to fill in the backstory. They also have security cameras set up, which does help to fill in gaps and can kind of explain why, you know, some things are being filmed when they're not even there. So I can buy all of that, and it eliminates an issue that I have at times with, you know, why are they still filming? It also explains why they stick around when scary things are happening. Because then they do need proof or to, you know, debunk what is happening here. Now something else I like is incorporating real history into this movie. Now later on into it, a Father Calvino, who is portrayed by Patrick Godfrey, shows up. He brings up missionaries coming to England, taking pagan lands and temples. And then they're blessing them and then turning them into churches. I've heard about this from history as well as from things like Rawhead Rex. I like the use of this as it helps to explain what we're dealing with here, you know, being older than Christianity. It also gives a Lovecraftian element as this is cosmic horror as well, especially with the ending. Now going along with the found footage angle, what adds a creepy level of them being there would be the sound design. Everything we are hearing is within the world of the movie. I like that aspect. We are hearing creepy sounds and then seeing characters ask, you know, are they the ones doing this or is it something else? There's also another thing they do later in the movie that makes things that we are hearing even scarier. I thought this is one of the strongest parts of the movie for me. So where I'll go next is the acting. Now, being that this is found footage, I don't think we need to have you know great acting in a movie like this. So with that said, I thought this group that we follow is solid. Kennedy plays this jaded guy of Deacon very well. I get the idea and the feeling that he has a past that he is you know making him to who he is now. Hill is one who just isn't jaded as of yet and just wants to believe. And then McArdle is the secondary to them since he isn't there at first and then we don't follow him as much. I do know that his character of Mark is one who follows the book when it comes to like what they're supposed to be doing here and how their investigation should go, you know, much more than their counterparts. I thought that Luke Neal as Father Krellick was good. I also like the cameo by Godfrey as Father Calvino. I thought the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed from there. And really the last thing I would go into would be the cinematography. I've already said my positives on it, but I did have an issue. I'm not a fan of the digital messing up of the camera. We get a lot of that in this movie. I know why it's used here, and it makes sense, especially at the end. It's just something that I've seen a lot of in movies like this, and I'm just not the biggest fan of it being used. So in conclusion here, I ended up enjoying what this movie was doing. I knew the title coming in and that it had a religious aspect to it. There are some things like the concept, premise, and the lore that they're incorporating that ticks boxes for me. I would say that the acting was solid across the board and felt natural. I like the found footage angle, and I think that their you know, filming makes sense and the sound design works. If I have a negative, it is a digital messing up of the footage. That would be you know, kind of my issue there. For me, though, this is a good movie. One of the better found footage films out there, and especially one that you don't hear a whole lot about. If the things that I have brought up ticks boxes for you, I would definitely give this a viewing. So my rating here for Final Prayer or The Borderlands is an 8 out of 10. And I've also watched Under the Skin. This is from 2013. This was directed as well as co-written by Jonathan Glazer. And then Walter Campbell helped come up with the screenplay. And this is based on the novel by Mikkel Faber. This stars Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy McWilliams, and Lindsay Taylor McKay. This is a drama horror sci-fi thriller film that is a co-production between the United Kingdom and Switzerland. This is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 
3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mysterious young woman seduces lonely men in the evening hours in Scotland. However, events lead her to begin a process of self-discovery. So this is a movie that I heard about thanks to the podcast Under the Stairs. Duncan over there has spoken highly of this movie a couple times, and it went out of a list for movies for me to check out. I am now getting the chance, thanks to the T-Put Summer Challenge series, as this is another one that popped up on the 2013 list. So this movie doesn't have the deepest of stories, but this is more of a character study of the character that is known as the female, who is portrayed by Johansson. Now, and this is mostly her experiences with different people affecting where she ends up in the end, both good and bad. Now, where I should start here would be commending her performance. She already was a star when this movie came out, so I was glad to see her taking on a role like this. And in the beginning, she's so emotionless. Now, she is using what she has, which is her beauty, to pick up these different men, and it's really showing how easy it is for her. Johansson is one of the most beautiful women in the world, so, you know, doing what she's doing does make sense. Now, shifting this over to something here with the story, I like the movie is taking the predator idea and inverting it. Not saying that men are not raped by women, but most of the attacks are the other way around. The female picking up these victims, taking them back to her place, and then, you know, like, feeding them to whatever is, you know, taking these people that she kind of gives to it. The men are so eager to get to her, they don't even realize their own demise. Now, I kind of feel bad for them. Now, when watching, I was thinking what I would do, and I hate to say it, but I'd probably end up right there with most of them. Now, the female does experience things that makes her question her existence, which is getting back to the synopsis. There is encountering this family at the beach. Now, there is Roy Armstrong, who is the father. We have Allison Chand, who is the mother. And then the baby is Ben and Oscar Mills. The mother is swept out by the current, and the father tries to save her. Now, the female sees this happening and does nothing to help. She also hears about this event on the radio afterwards. What really affects her, though, is meeting the deformed man. It makes her question things, and we see a change in her after that encounter. This leads her to meeting Andrew, who is portrayed by Paul Brannigan. Now, I believe that's the name of this character, but she realizes she is different, and it leads her to become the prey that she is at the end. I'm glossing over this here, as I don't want to spoil anything, but believe me, it is much more difficult to see some of these things here that I've you know, kind of laid out here. And, you know, just kind of just glossing over it like I have is one thing, but, you know seeing things play out is much different now this is aided by the cinematography and the soundtrack i had a buddy on facebook reach out when he saw that i was watching this and say how beautiful this movie looks and i have to agree the cinematography is amazing how things are framed the coloring and just seeing how something like going to the mall can look so much more important than what it is i also have to commend the effects here we don't get a lot of them but what we do look good the soundtrack also helps to build the atmosphere this movie has the song that plays when the female takes victims to this room is haunting, and it will be one that I'm going to add to my collection when writing just because of how it made me feel while watching this. So the last thing to go into here would be I have a slight issue with the pacing of the movie, though. I do think this runs just a bit too long. For how much I enjoy seeing some of these things play out, we do get a bit repetitiveness with that, and I think that some of this could have been trimmed by about like 15 minutes or so. I don't think we would have lost anything there, and it still can convey the message that it's going for. There isn't as so much to say that it hurts the movie, but it's just something I didn't notice while watching it. So in conclusion here, this is a haunting film for sure. I like the stripped down feel to what we're getting. Things aren't explained, but I don't necessarily know if we need it. The concept and the premise of this are good. I like inverting something that we have all heard or have experienced ourselves. Johannes does an excellent job in her role. I'd also say that everyone around her works in support. The cinematography effects and the soundtrack are all great. Really my only issue here is I think it just runs a bit too long. Other than that, I think this is a good movie, bordering on great, and it is one that I'm interested in revisiting now that I have seen it and figure out if I miss anything after that first viewing. So my rating here for Under the Skin is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. <laughs> Tell you, gentlemen, opera is really a very fine institution. You should cultivate it more, Dinky. I certainly would if they made us a gift like this every night. There must be four. 
I'll bet there's $5,000 here. There was a full house. Every seat taken. Ah, oh, but they give a lot of passes away to them places. Finish counting it. I don't think it's over 3500 Well, there's $2,790, $2,795. Put down that 20... money, Dinky. The rest of you stay where you are. Hello, Jeff. When did you get out? Oh, Johnny, this is Jeff. Who's that guy? Well, this is Johnny. He's our new boss. What's the matter with his face? It was burned. That's a mask. He's underneath. Never mind my face. Heard of you, Mr. Jeff. I guess you did. You're going to hear more of me now. This wasn't a bad job tonight, but you're not taking over, even if you have been using my boys. Because I'm back on the job. We've been doing all right with him. Nothing's going to stop it. We're going to live just as swell. Only we'll change one thing. We don't need him. All right, boys, come on. Listen, Mr. Jeff, aren't you a little hasty? You see, we don't need you, you need us. These were your boys, they are mine now. We still all can work together. We all can be friends if you want to play friendly, it's up to you. I'll cut you in starting with this deal. And Jeff, I think that's being very generous. Well, what do you say? And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be The Face Behind the Mask. This is from 1941. This is directed by Robert Flory. The screenplay was written by Paul Jericho. The story was adapted by Arthur Levinston. And this comes from the play called Interm by Thomas Edward O'Connell. This stars Peter Lorre, Evelyn Keyes, and Don Beto. This is also featuring Georgie Stone, John Terrell, Cy Schindel, Stanley Brown, James C., Warren Ash, Charles C. Wilson, George McKay, Ernie Adams, Sam Ash, Al Bridge, Mary Courier, John Dilson, Sarah Edwards, and Eddie Foster. This is a crime drama film noir horror romance film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a disfigured watchmaker with a grudge against society embarks on a life of crime. So this is another movie that I found thanks to Letterboxd for horror releases in 1941. It took me a little looking to find this one, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that Peter Lorre was starring. Aside from that, I did read the synopsis, but you know, came in a blind from aside from that, as I was just trying to figure out two movies that I could sync up for you know this Aussie Through the One segment here. So before I jump into the movie itself, the director of Flory has 65 credits, of them four are horror. The first was with Bella Lugosi and Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue from 1932. Now I have seen that one, and then the next one he did is this movie here, and then he followed it with The Beast with Five Fingers, which I've also seen. The only one that I haven't is the incredible Dr. Markinsan from 1962. This almost looks like a German film. That looks to be all the movies that I've seen from him. And then for the screenplay writer of Jericho, this is a person who wrote 18 movies. This is the only horror film and the only one that it looks like I've seen. Helping him adapt the story was Levinson, and this is the only movie that he worked on. So the moving to our actors, Laurie has 96 films. Of them, I've seen nine total. Ten of this are in horror. Now, he was in Mad Love from 1935, which I haven't seen as of yet. It's on my list. Uh, I brought it up because it has some other famous people in it as well. He was also in You'll Find Out, which is a movie I covered here on the podcast last year. He was also in this and in The Boogeyman Will Get You, as well as The Beast with Five Fingers. I've seen both of those, and the latter was him teaming back up with Flory, who was the director. And I've also seen him in the comedy of Terrors as well. So in his co-star here of Keys was in 52 movies. Of them, I've seen three. Four of those are in horror. Now, the three that I have seen are all in this genre with Before I Hang, this movie here, as well as A Return to Salem's Lot. The last one it looks like she was in was Wicked Stepmother from 1989, which I had never heard of. So then the last actor I will look at is actually the most accomplished with Bedow. He was in 146 films. I've seen six so far. The ones that I have seen have been named, actually, are the all three of them that were in horror for him. So the first was Before I Hang. He was in this movie here. And then I've also seen him in The Boogeyman Will Get You. Now, another movie that I've seen that isn't necessarily horror was The Night of the Hunter, which I really enjoyed that movie. I've seen that one a few times now. 
So we start this movie with a ship coming to America. It is coming into New York City, and on it is Janos Zabado, who is portrayed by Lori. Now he talks to the captain, and we can see how excited Janos is. He has everything planned out to ensure that he succeeds. Being that this is a large city, has him a bit nervous though. Now he wants to get a like juice from a vendor, but panics when he opens his wallet and his money is missing. This causes him to seek out a police officer who is talking to a Lieutenant James O'Hara, who's portrayed by Bedow. Jim talks to Janos, and they discover he has just misplaced it as he hid it while he was on the ship while talking to somebody. Now, through a conversation, Jim realizes he needs a place to stay, so he sends him to the Excelsior Hotel. He also gives him his card if he ever needs anything. Now, Janos's fortunes seem to be looking up when he checks in. Terry Finnegan, who's portrayed by George McKay, runs the place, and he has a lot of vacancies currently. The cook of the cafe located in the hotel needs a dishwasher, which Janos accepts the position. There are only two rules to stay here, though, with one of them being not to cook in your own room. Now, another resident doesn't follow this. In an attempt to hide what he's doing from Terry, he puts the burner into a drawer, which causes a fire. Now, Janos isn't able to escape. He does survive. He gets trapped. He ends up getting out, but not before he is badly damaged and hurt. So this causes him to wake up in the hospital. After a few surgeries and needing to wear bandages, they are finally removed. Now a nurse gasps in horror with what he looks like. This agitates Janos, and when he gets up and finally looks at himself in the mirror, this sends him into a rage, and he even attacks the doctor in the process. Now this is the only start of his troubles. Now he cannot find work with how he, you know, his appearance is. Every time he inquires, they look at his face and turn him away, which is kind of an interesting look here at discrimination. Now this leads him to meet Dinky, who is portrayed by Stone, and Janos scares off a guy who drops his wallet. Dinky picks it up and splits the money with him. Janos doesn't want to steal, but it really is the only option that he has at the moment. So this leads Janos to being called Johnny, and he meets the rest of Dinky's crew of Watts, who is portrayed by Terrell, Benson, portrayed by Shindell, and Harry, who is portrayed by Brown. Now they start to pull off some pretty big jobs while they are working together. That is all until Jeff Jeffries, who is portrayed by C, gets out of prison. He wants to be back in charge of the gang, but Johnny isn't a pushover. He has made enough money for a mask, but he needs more for surgeries to fully fix his face. He does have a change of heart, though, when he meets a Helen Williams, who's portrayed by Keys. Now, she's a nice and beautiful blind woman. He wants to get out of the game for her, but Jeff has other plans. Now, I think that's where I'll leave my recap for this movie, as it doesn't have the most complex of stories. This is based off of a radio play, which I did find to be interesting. Now, in my research and kind of watching some of these older movies, it isn't uncommon when you base off, you know, source material as we are still in early cinema where you don't have a lot of original works for film yet, but we do have a built-in audience, which, I mean, we still see today why people, you know, do adaptations. What I like about this is that we have an interesting character to follow here with Janos. He has the American dream and is ready to take on, you know, work as he's coming here to make a living. He has a love of his life back home, who he wants to pay for her way so she can join him in America. He believes in doing the right thing in the beginning, and it isn't until someone else breaks the rules that makes him become a tragic figure. This was something I found to be quite interesting. Even after he gets money from a robbery, he still doesn't want to, you know, do that and just wants to do the right thing. It is Dinky that pushes him into crime, and I mean, all the men that he applies for jobs who deny him are kind of partially to blame here. It is an interesting social commentary of discrimination that isn't completely gone even in this day and age now, so it kind of has some social relevance still. Now, there is something else here that I want to delve into. Giannis wants to be a watchmaker, and that takes a lot of skill with your hands. He's also gained experience from other jobs like during the war learning how to fix and build airplanes. He can even fly the planes as well, which is something that we learn when he applies for a job in a factory you know, for airplanes. These skills that he has translate to making him, you know, the crime boss that he ends up becoming. What I also like is that he has the confidence he gains through this when Jeff gets out of prison, when, you know, there's him challenging for the leadership role. So next I really want to delve more into Janos and him being burned. I brought up how he's a tragic figure due to this. The only thing he can do is crime because nobody will hire him. It is interesting that we never get to see his face burned up. I'm assuming this was due to not having the technology or the effects to show the damage. There is an interesting idea here about the mask being made for him. It is funny is that it's just Janos's face, so they didn't need him to be bandaged up when he was doing things, and it's also turning to crime to pay for the mask and potentially surgeries to fix his face. He does have good intentions, even though he's doing bad things, and this leads him to Helen as well. So the last thing I'll do with the story here is 
I'm not sure if this idea of a blind woman falling for somebody deformed started here or not, but I like it. Janos has lost all confidence in appearance. Helen loves him because not being able to see his face, she looks past it and sees he has a good heart. So this is interesting that he's a criminal at that time as well, so he doesn't necessarily have a good heart when she meets him, but you know she can kind of get that he is a good person. This is an idea that we get with things like Red Dragon, Manhunter, or even like the Toxic Avenger. So moving away from the story, I'll go next to the acting. Laurie is solid as his crime boss. He's an actor that I haven't seen him in as many movies as I should, but I can see why he's worked as much as he did and why he is still kind of one of the legends of early cinema. Keyes is good as his blind woman who helps to direct him back to good. Bedal works as Jim, the detective that just wants to help Janos. And then aside from that, I thought all the criminals that we have here look and work in their roles for me. They run this movie out for what was needed there. So really the last thing I would go into would be the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. I would have liked to have seen Janos's face, but I understand why we don't. Now there isn't much in the way of effects in this movie aside from that, and I don't know, it's not really a movie that necessarily needs them. The cinematography is fine and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. Neither of those stood out to me, if I'm going to be perfectly honest though. So there's not really much in the way of trivia. This looks like it was also part of the Son of Shock package of 20 titles that were released to television in 58. The shooting lasted for this from November 6th to November 26th of 1940, and then getting its release not too long after in January of 1941. So then just to kind of end this out here, in conclusion, I think this is a movie that has an interesting concept for early cinema. We have Janos who has turned to a life of crime when there's nothing else for him to do, and it makes him a tragic figure. The performance from Laurie is good there. I also like having Helen who wants to help him, but then is, you know, having all these criminals preventing that from happening. I didn't like the ending though as I didn't feel like it made that much sense and it was just too abrupt. I get what they're doing but I just wanted more. I would say that aside from the cinematography and soundtrack those were fine. It would have been nice to see Janos's scars but I get why we don't. So for me this movie is just over average. It is lacking for some of these things to go higher than what I did. And I'm also assuming that when this came out there's probably some censorship issues with the Hays Code which is probably why it is lacking some of those things that would make this movie better for me. So my rating here for the face behind the mask is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't really think there's anything else I need to kind of delve any deeper into than what I already have. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Okay. I'm good. Really? Really. <laughs> You'll be okay to attend for the full two-month period? Yes. So we really just show up and sleep. We just need you lying there in REM. REM, the stage of sleep where we dream the most vividly. How many of us are in the study? I can't tell you that. What are you studying? I can't tell you that either. Stage one, the eyes close. A reduction in activity between wakefulness. Stage two, the slowing of the heart rate. Their bodies are preparing them for deep sleep. What were those pictures Anita showed me this morning? I can't tell you that. I don't want to do this anymore. Now we wait. We'll either be hailed or crucified based on our treatment of this breakthrough. It's happening. This is exactly what he's been waiting for. Run! Don't you ever feel like you're seeing something that you're not supposed to? My second feature review on this episode is going to be Come True. This is technically from 2020, but it didn't get its wide release until 2021. It was doing its festival rounds uh, last year. This is directed by Anthony Scott Burns, who also wrote the screenplay, and Daniel Vassenberger came up with the story. This stars Julia Sarah Stone, Landon Leboiron, and Carly Reiske. This also features Christopher Hetherington, 
Tidra Rogers, Brandon D. Wynn, John Tasker, Austin Baker, Sean Ghostkeeper, Christopher Thomas, Carolyn Buzanko, Oren Muskusker, Tyler Dreger, Karen Johnson Diamond, Tiffany Helm, Marla Grant, Millie Jane, and Alex Chervusky. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a teenage runaway takes part in a sleep study that becomes a nightmarish descent into the depths of her mind and a frightening examination of the power of dreams. So this is a movie that my buddy over on Facebook of Tim had been championing it for some time this year. I respect his opinion on movies to check out, even if I don't always agree with them on like how high we are on it. Because of that, I added this to my list of 2021 releases to check out, which is why it's you know featured here. And I'll be honest, I briefly skimmed the synopsis, but didn't necessarily know what I was getting into here. So before I get into the movie itself, I'm going to do a little bit of featured notes. The director of Burns has six credits so far. His first in horror was a segment in Holidays from 2016. Now he followed that with Our House from 2018. Now I haven't seen either of them. I have heard of both of them. And I will be interested to go check them out now that I have seen this movie here. As a writer, he has five credits. It looks like in horror, he wrote his segment in Holidays as well as this movie here. Then we have Weissenberger, who came up with the story. Now he has five writing credits total. Two of them are in horror, and it looks like along with this, he did Butchers from 2020. Now I've also heard of this movie, but I have yet to see it as well. And then moving over to the actors, I'll start with Stone. She has 19 credits at this time. Her first was a low-budget effort, I'm assuming, of Tasmanian Devils from 2013. And then she was also in The Unseen in 2016. I haven't seen either of them, and this is the only movie I have, we you know, with her featured in it. Her co-star of Libor Iron has 16 credits. Four of them are horror, and I've seen three of them. The only one that I haven't is his first of Altitude from 2010. It is a movie that I've seen the case and, like, the poster and everything for, and it kind of looks intriguing, while also probably being a low-budget effort. But from there, I've seen him in The Howling Reborn, Blumhouse's Truth or Dare, and then this. And then the last actress is Reisky, and this is the only movie that she has been in thus far. So we start this movie off going through some mist from what we're seeing. It appears we are moving through a rock formation and then toward a door. We are then getting our first glimpse of someone in the shadows, and their eyes are glowing. And then we get a young woman that wakes up in a park. She is camping out on the slide, and her name is Sarah Dunn, and she's portrayed by Stone. This movie is told in four chapters, with the first one being the persona. Sarah rides her bike to a house where she waits for a woman to leave. Sarah then sneaks in, gets cleaned up, grabs a few things, and then heads to school. There she speaks to the friend of Zoe, who is portrayed by Rogers. Through their interactions, we learn that Sarah is a runaway from home like the synopsis states. She is trying to find a place to stay, but it appears that it's you know kind of difficult, so she's going to have to camp out again in the park. She goes back home, grabs her sleeping bag, and her mother almost catches her in the room. But we never really do learn why she has left. Now Sarah has another dream, similar to the one that we just saw, and this is something that continues to happen throughout this movie. She is struggling to stay awake in school, and then that day she does find a flyer for a sleep study and decides to check it out. She goes through the intake process with Anita, who is portrayed by Reisky, and this starts the second chapter of this movie with the anima and the animus. So then she ends up getting selected along with another woman and four males to be part of this study. They will get paid to sleep while they're there, and they have to wear these futuristic-looking outfits that include a helmet. The next morning, they get asked some questions, and then, you know, this first night, Sarah wakes up more rested than she has in some time. She then goes to a bookstore that day, and she encounters Jeremy, who's portrayed by Liber Iron. Now, he recommends a book that she is looking at from Philip K. Dick. And I did find some trivia about this, and it looks like the book that she picks up is We Can Build You by him. And this is from 1972. And it does look like the version she picks up is the 1994 Vintage Books Issued Trade Paperback. But then, as I was saying, as Jeremy recommends his book, and Sarah is spooked when she and Zoe go to the movies, and he shows up there as well. So this isn't the last time that she encounters this guy. She is worried when Emily, who was portrayed by Buzanko... Now, she was her roommate for this study, and she doesn't show up the second day. The following morning, Sarah is shown some images that agitate her and send her into the worst panic attack of her life. She wants to quit the study, which upsets Dr. Mayer, who's portrayed by Hetherington, and he's the one that's in charge of this experiment. 
He's upset with Jeremy and Anita, along with the others that are working for him, as this isn't actually part of what they're supposed to be doing. So Jeremy is the only one who's able to keep Sarah, you know, in this kind of study. And that's only through revealing what they're actually looking for and what they're actually doing. She's quite upset, but she doesn't really have anywhere else to go. She also sees that there's something up with this experiment that they're doing. Now, there is a phenomena that is going on here that they were hoping would happen where everybody is experiencing the same nightmare of these shadow people with the glowing eyes. So I feel like that gets you up to speed with the story and where this movie is going without taking you too much into spoilers. Where I want to start is warning you that this is a slow burn, and I don't know if everyone will like this movie. It is creepy with the images that we're seeing through the dreams, and it helps to build the atmosphere from there. I would say, though, that there are some interesting concepts that are built from there as well. So first what I want to delve into is the idea of dreams. We still don't know a whole lot about them. That is something I find fascinating, especially since you have a great horror minds that use their dreams as basis for their works. We learned that early enough in this movie that I don't think it's necessarily a spoiler to share here, but Dr. Mayer was hoping that everyone he had selected would sync up and dream about these shadow people. Through podcasts and research on the internet, this is a phenomenon that I didn't realize existed. It is a terrifying idea, and I like that this movie is incorporating them. They're also using some sleep paralysis in there, another thing that also scares me. So from here, though, I think I need to shift this over to our main character of Sarah. We get to know her, and then we know that she is dreaming about what I stated before, and I almost get the feeling that she might be the catalyst for this study. I could be wrong there, but that's the idea that I'm getting. Jeremy is going a bit rogue with this experiment with the help of Anita, which in the end angers Dr. Meyer. There is technology in this movie that allows them to map and record what we are seeing in our dreams. The way it is presented for me works, even though this is science fiction, and at this time, as far as I know, this isn't real. But this does lead to the climax that is quite creepy, and from what we've seen, and you know, the atmosphere again helps. And I also kind of think it's interesting that she picks up a book from Dick, who is a you know writer of science fiction, as this definitely feels like they're kind of incorporating that idea back into this. And since they're already leaning into that, you might as well go after one of the you know most famous sci-fi writers as kind of mix in there if you can. But I don't necessarily think all of this works. Now, if you know me, you know that I like slow burns. I do think this one might be a bit long and could have been trimmed to tighten it up. Because of having a bit of that filler there, it does take some time to get to what is creepy here for me. I also feel like that affects some of the factors that we saw earlier on as well. Now, I'm fine with them establishing things like the characters and the experiments, but I think some of that can be trimmed and, you know, make it run a little bit smoother. And there's also this reveal at the end that I both liked and disliked at the same time. This will be the one that I need to rewatch just to see if I might have missed something and I might not have fully understood what I saw. I think I kind of do, and I do like elements of it. So from the story, I'll take it next to the acting. I was impressed with Stone here. Early into this movie, she is exhausted. They do well with the makeup to convey that, and she also acts like someone who is not sleeping. So that whole thing works for me, and I mean, you see her in like school where she's falling asleep just sitting there, and that she's almost to the point where no matter what's going to happen, she is going to just, you know, pass out. I also like that we understand her plight without necessarily needing information to explain it further. Lib Iron is fine as the male lead. He comes off as creepy when he's following Sarah. There's also something else off about him that we get in this movie that I didn't necessarily like. It isn't necessarily anything that he does, but it was how it was written into the character with Sarah. And I thought the rest of the cast kind of just rounded out for what was needed in support of these two. And I mean, let's be honest here, Sarah really is the focal point. So then there's the effect, cinematography, and soundtrack. Now I'm going to combine the first two here. The looks of the dreams are creepy. There is some mist that kind of helps there as well. And what we're seeing doesn't always make sense. And I give credit to the cinematography there because, I mean, part of this, we are looking at dreams. So that's kind of how it would be. The look of the shadow people is good. What I also want to give credit to here would be the atmosphere as well as, you know, how this movie moves along and the lines of reality and dreams are blurred, which works. Also, the soundtrack helps here and it fits for what was needed. And it also helps to build this unnerving feel to things. And I can say it really kind of worked for me in building what they were going for. And then I just had one little bit of trivia here that I was going to share is that George Romero references in this movie. We have Dr. Meyer who wears the same glasses as Romero. And then we have Sarah wearing a t-shirt that says Romero on one scene. And then there's also the scene in the theater where they are actually watching Night of the Living Dead. And I know this is mostly just because this movie is in public domain, so you can use it for free. So then in conclusion here, this movie has some good things going for it. Dream sequences are something I'm not always a fan of, but if your concept is built around dreams, then I am more forgiving. What they do 
with this idea is interesting as they build in some science fiction elements. I do think that the acting works well for Stone bringing the character of Sarah to life. The rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed. I'd say that the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack work here to build the atmosphere as we need it. If I do have any issues, just a bit slow. With some trimming, I think this could have run tighter. Aside from that, I think there is a reveal at the end that had me questioning things. So for me, despite the minor flaws I have with it, I found this still to be a good movie. This is one that I will revisit before the end of the year to see how it sits with that second viewing. So my rating here for Come True is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I'm not going to do a spoiler section. I do want people to see this movie, so I don't really think I need to go into anything here outside of just, you know, completely spoiling the movie itself. So what I will do is get you over to a brief break before I close out the show. I'd like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here for episode 88... If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me, you know, any sort of feedback, or if you want anything right on the show, just let me know in there. And then, if you'd like to read any of the reviews from this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU, and you can read any of the reviews that I share, you know, that are horror or non-horror over there. And then if you'd like to follow the Instagram, it's davidosu87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And I'll be posting all of the movie posters for anything that I have reviewed over there. And then just to make it easier on you as well, I will have all of those links in the show notes. And the last thing I'll ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe just so that way you never miss a new episode. As well, if you're able to rate and review, just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, and then to get to more listeners out there as well. So then for the next episode, for number 89, is going to be another Odyssey Through the Ones episode. On that one, I'm going to be having featured reviews of The Power, that's the 2021 release, and then The Ghost Train, which is from 1941. I'm getting down to the end of that list over there. And then I'm also going to try to see if I can go to the theater to watch the new Escape Room film. That is out as well, just because it kind of looks interesting. I did enjoy uh, the original one, you know, well enough, so I would like to see that one in the theater if I can make time for it. I do have a little bit of a busy schedule, but I really think that's all I need to kind of get you up to speed with there. I'll also have, you know, some mini reviews, more of the Summer Challenge series movies. I continue to work through those lists over there. So what I will say is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 